For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how an outreach program is making contact with teens living on the Tucson streets. Writer Lisa M. O'Neill shares an essay about her experience with sexual harassment. Spend a night on Mount Lemmon watching the skies for fast-moving objects near Earth. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Unaccompanied homeless youth are the most challenging population of homeless to accurately gauge in numbers. These young people can have many reasons for wanting to stay hidden and off the radar. Next, Brandon Mejia invites you to spend an average day in the life of a pair of social workers who are trying to make contact and build trust with kids in Tucson who need help to turn their lives around. It's a Thursday afternoon and I'm walking through the streets of Tucson with case managers Carl Blade and Julie Lucetta. They both work with Our Family Services, a local nonprofit, which is part of a national effort called Street Outreach, which helps homeless youth. They, along with one other case manager, are the only line of communication between homeless youth out in the streets and the resources available at Street Outreach. As we head down Speedway, Carl explains all the hotspots we'll hit on our tour. Fourth Avenue, downtown area, and especially like the Ronstadt Center, that's kind of like the major hub. And that's where most of the kids um, kind of like congregate. Um, And I've just figured that out just over the years, just from doing it for a long time. Carl has been with Our Family Services for more than 20 years and was there when they received the grant to begin the street outreach program. About seven, eight years ago, we, uh, I guess there was this RHY runaway homeless youth um, um, street outreach grant um, that was pretty much up for grabs. So our agency just decided to apply for it. We wrote a proposal and applied for this um, federal federal grant. And we, um, lo and behold, we got it. Tucson, along with 10 other cities which received a $200,000 grant, are designated areas that Carl says have a high population of homeless youth. As we prepare for the tour, Carl explains the information they'll be trying to gather. We use this to kind of like record kind of like our contacts. I usually do most of the talking and Julie, like I say, Julia probably record kind of like the age group, gender, race, ethnicity, whether or not we give out like an outreach kit as well as food and whether or not it's like a first time contact or not. We have to keep a log on this uh, and turn it in each quarter. The age range they look for is anyone under 24. After 24, they are considered adults. So these are the hygiene kits that we pass out. The kit also has deodorant, toothpaste, toothbrush, shampoo, razors. And this is a female kit. We also have like the male kits. Uh, 
Yeah, we also carry like bottles of water and here's a sample of our, here's a sample of like one of our food packs with one of our safe place cards. Each food pack contains a can of spaghetti, crackers, nuts, a fruit cup, and a safe place card, which lets homeless youth know that Quick Trip stores around Southern Arizona serve as safe places they can turn to to seek shelter. As we walk down 4th Avenue, I'm quick to learn that even students from Tucson hire kids they inform as well. We are, we are, I have your you do, well that is good. Like I said, we're street outreach workers, so we work with um, individuals who consider either homeless or at risk of being homeless. So we're just out here just passing out our information. If you guys, oh, I appreciate that. If you guys have any friends who fit the category of either homeless or at risk of being homeless for whatever reason, if you can just pass our information what does on. This program do? We just help them with services. So potentially we can help them with housing, um, transportation, food, just basic needs. Um, we, we just try to help them with. So like I said, it might not fit you guys, but like I said, I'm, you guys probably might have friends who are having problems at home, or on the verge of getting kicked out for whatever reason. If you can just pass our information on, we'd appreciate it. This was nothing new for Carl, who before the street outreach program worked as a school-based case manager. It became clear to me that a large amount of the homeless youth population didn't have to be at a school or on the streets to be considered homeless. So what we would do is we would go into the different high schools and uh, with the help of the teachers or the staff at the school, um, they would help us identify the um, kids who were homeless and at risk or at risk of being homeless in the high schools. And we would take care of everything like right there at the school. Unfortunately, they would later lose the funding for that program and would lead them to aggressively approaching the grant that gave them street outreach. Communication with homeless youth for Carl and the team had to be made throughout the streets now. At the south end of 4th Avenue, we meet a young girl sitting with her friends right near the bridge. Once Carl begins talking to her, we learn some homeless youth don't always fit the stereotype. Just basic things like housing, food, clothes, transportation, things like that. If you guys know of anybody who might fit that category, if you could just pass our information on. Me, but like, what's the qualification? Qualification? Under 24? I'm 18. Yeah. And I don't have a place and jumping between friends' houses. Yep. Cow shopping, yeah. Cow shopping? Mm -hmm. That, you qualify. That's all you need. Carl gives her the information card, and the next step is for her to set up an assessment interview. Well, we just asked just basic information about education. Have they, have they completed school? Uh, just get like a brief family history um, from them. Uh, uh, and mainly what it is they feel that they need help with. Because what I try to do is I just ask them, well, what is it at this particular time you feel that you need help with? And I let them tell me. Carl says teens hopping from couch to couch are still considered homeless, meaning they can qualify for housing opportunities. Right now, Carl has nine kids in emergency housing. We have to physically go out and just hit the parks and hit the streets to try to locate the kids, just to let them know that housing has been found for them. We're headed down to our final hotspot for the day downtown, where many older homeless tend to congregate around the city park near the library. Carl says within the older ones, sometimes youth homeless can be found. Julie Lucetta, Carl's partner, spots one youth in the group from whom housing is now available. So she found the person that a match has been found for potential housing, so she's talking to him about um, setting up a time to come in to get that process started. 
The process is only the beginning of the long journey many of these young individuals take to get back on track and be able to self-sustain. Carl says that part is what he sees as most challenging of the entire process. We set a goal for them. And it was like just before they the, uh, reach the goal, something happens, boom. Fall off the cliff and you got to start all over again. And like I said, we just, can, we just stay consistent. So they steadily give them food, passing out the information. And for some of the kids, when they're ready to, re, uh, to, uh, to want to receive services, that's when they'll kind of like pull us aside. It's like, uh, can I set up a time to come into your office and, and um, get help with something? Carl and his crew head out on foot three to five times a week during the afternoon hours. Starting in January, they plan to have two late nights a month where they will travel in a van, checking the hotspots teens tend to head to during the night hours. Last year, Street Outreach connected with nearly 1,700 homeless youth. Of that total, 165 of those homeless youth were provided with case management services. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Brandon Mejia. Tucson writer Lisa M. O'Neill's work has been featured in publications including Good Magazine, Edible Baja, Arizona, and Salon.com. She joins us now to share a personal essay. This is Women's Bodies, Women's Consent. I am Lisa M. O'Neill. Last year, before Donald Trump won the presidency, but after a videotape was released where he admitted to groping women without their consent, I received a text from a friend I hadn't seen in years. His message began, re-Trump. He said he couldn't stop thinking about the time, years ago, when we were out listening to music and a drunk man kept grabbing my butt. Not once, not twice, but three or four times. My friend said he was heartbroken that he couldn't prevent it and was sorry he didn't do more at the time. He wrote, that will never happen again. I took a few minutes to respond, stumped about what to say because of one fact. I had no memory of that incident. Once I began to reflect, I filled in the details. Where I was standing, what I was wearing, and how angry I had been before shrugging the affront off. But this moment, was just one of many times when I was made to feel my body was not my own. Through inappropriate proximity, through running commentary on my shape, size, and features, through catcalls, through unwanted dances and touches to the small of my back, through grabs of my breasts and butt. A moment that years later stood out to my male friend as shocking was completely and utterly ordinary to me. I told my friend I had probably blocked that moment out. And then I relayed a few more incidents. When I was walking down a crowded New Orleans street one Halloween and a man passing by reached out and grabbed my breast. When I leaned in to order a drink at a bar and felt a hard slap on my butt that shocked my system, I yelled and then turned around to ask the man why he did that. 
his reply, because it was there. Another time, my women friends and I were taking a selfie at an event when an older white man offered to take our picture. Upon taking my phone and stepping back, he made a gesture as if cupping his own hypothetical breasts and said something about putting ours forward. Then, as I struggled to process what was happening and maintain composure, he told me to smile. I think of how much women must block out just to function. As one woman friend said, if you remembered that experience all the time, you'd probably never go to a concert again. I'd never go to a concert, never go to a coffee shop, never walk down the street, never ride my bike, never go to work, never write something I care about, never do any of the things that compose my life. We have watched in the news as men in power in public space have started to be held accountable for their sexual harassment and assault of women. While incidents of sexual assault and harassment are on some level about sex, they are, at their core, about dominance and control. They are about a culture that does not value women, that sees them as objects instead of human beings. Besides the strange men who endanger us, there are men in our lives who know us, who we think we can trust, until we find out we can't. And besides those men that would cause us harm, there are many good men who do nothing. I don't mean that they don't step in to help when something happens. I mean that they allow misogynistic comments and jokes to be said in their presence without intervening. I mean that they hear women in their lives complain about sexism and then make excuses about why these women are overreacting. Men who don't have difficult conversations with other men. Men who don't do the work of undoing their learned misogyny. Women are tired of feeling that our lives, health, and well-being are in constant danger. We are tired of having to explain rape culture to people who say it doesn't exist. We are tired of clarifying why consent is necessary. We are tired of being told that we should lighten up. Women don't need pity, and we don't need rescuing, but we do need to be listened to. We have options. Together, we can be honest about the ways women are degraded and abused and remake our communities in ways that honor and celebrate women instead. We can hold predatory men accountable. We can decide that now is the time to talk to our children differently, to teach them about autonomy and consent. Men can work to undo internalized toxic masculinity that our culture has fostered and condoned. Women can undo our internalized misogyny by recognizing our own and one another's value. We can continue to speak our truth. And all of us together can carve a path towards a future that makes room for women everywhere. I am Lisa M. O'Neill for Arizona Spotlight. This essay was adapted from one originally published online in Bustle. You can find a link to more of Lisa M. O'Neill's writing on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org.
In the mountains north of Tucson, telescopes scan the sky every night looking for fast-approaching objects. Space rocks on their way past Earth from across the universe, perhaps hundreds of millions of miles away. These distant travelers are tracked and assessed for their potential to collide with our planet. AZPM science reporter Sarah Hammond recently spent a night at the Catalina Sky Survey, and here is her report. It's a cloudless night, and we are high up at 9,100 feet altitude in the Catalina Mountains. The autumn air is crisp and still. It has all the makings of a perfect night to spot some new, undiscovered near-Earth objects, including asteroids and maybe a comet or two. That's the sound of Skywatcher Rose Matheny opening the dome above the 60-inch telescope about an hour before observing begins. That gives the instrument time to adjust to the outside temperature and humidity. Around sunset, during the day, the dome warms up, the mirror warms up, and you want the mirror to reach an equilibrium temperature. So the inside and the outside reach an equilibrium temperature, and in the process, the mirror will also cool down. Finding near-Earth objects is what the Catalina Sky Survey has been doing for 22 years, and they are the best at it. They use three telescopes on Mount Lemmon and Mount Bigelow, with operators stationed at the mountaintop and at the Lunar and Planetary Lab on the main University of Arizona campus. The scopes scan the sky every night that's clear, except for the four or five days around a full moon and during summer monsoons. The Sky Survey is a federally mandated project funded by NASA to find potentially dangerous space rocks. The good news is that more than 90% of the hazardous objects larger than 140 meters have been recorded. What these sky watchers look for are smaller objects which, if they collide with Earth, could be catastrophic. So we're the first line of defense. We survey the night sky for them and we find them and we report them. We do follow up on the same night discoveries. The nation's sky surveys add about 2,000 near-Earth objects to the catalog each year. The information is collected, analyzed, and archived by the Minor Planet Center at Harvard University, also NASA-funded. Matheny is starting a three-night run on Mount Lemmon. She'll select a section of the sky to aim the telescope, taking into account the effect of the waxing moon about eight days away from being full. She'll program the instrument's camera to automatically take 30-second exposures and then look at frame after frame all night long. Observing activities this night will last about 11 hours, from just after sunset until the sun begins to rise. So see this block, this pink block, and this purple block, and this blue block? This is a set, and the set is composed of 11 fields. And so it'll revisit each field four times until it's done with that set. And then once it's done, it goes through the pipeline, and the flats are applied, and noise is removed, and they're cleaned up. And then they get to me at this point here at the validation window. And when I see them, you will see four images, and they're blinked. And now I'm going to actually load it to our queue. And the queue is going to systematically start in the west. It's going to start here, and then it's going to move towards the east. Once the sky is dark, the planner program kicks in and the telescope's camera begins its work. It takes about 40 minutes from the time an imaging sequence starts until the data reaches her computer, which gives her time for a quick meal and a few minutes away from the computer screens before the data starts streaming in. 
Oh, see, here we got some images. So the fields are coming in. So nothing there. So, and that's typical of the first set, first couple of sets. You know, you're very close to the horizon in the west or the east. Um, so we, we tend not to find much, but you never know. You never know. Matheny is a skilled observer. She clicks through the four-frame animations in about a second. She can differentiate between known objects and something that may not have been seen previously. The reportable objects must have a digest score determined by a programmed algorithm of at least 65. That score takes into account the location, direction, speed, and magnitude of the object. There you go. Yep, that is real. And so I hit yes, and that's the 53 digest score. So it's a mover, it's moving, but it's not deemed to be of great importance at this moment. When one of the surveys identifies a real object, it's put into what's called the pipeline. The Minor Planet Center evaluates it and may ask the team that identified it and the other survey telescopes to follow it to add to the data about the object. All of that information is collated to estimate the object's size and to show the object's arc or path across the sky and its speed to help determine the likelihood of an impact with Earth. You will see every field we find something. The pipeline will warn us this is this is what this one we think is pretty important because we'll see we'll see something moving all the time but it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's an important object. Matheny said she is most proud of her discovery of an object that hit the Indian Ocean in 2015. It is one of three earth impactors Catalina has discovered over the years. Unlike the other two which were space rocks, Matheny's object is believed to have been part of the lunar prospector mission from the late 1990s. She's also made other important discoveries. Here she's recounting one for Steward Observatory Advisory Board member George Mavco, also visiting the telescope this night. Um, in my very first set, um, a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, I found a comet here. And it was, every time you see a comet, it, um, it doesn't pop up with a name, not always. Right. So you always stop and say, oh, and think, maybe this is it. Maybe this is my comet. This is Comet, this Matheny. Is comet Matheny. I yeah. found it. And then you go and you check, on, you, you yeah. run it through multi-check and, yeah. and see if it's ID'd. And mostly it comes back ID'd almost 99% of the time. But this one time it didn't, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, wait, this is a, this is a comet. So you report it as a comet because if you don't, you don't get it. Right, yeah. Then it becomes comet you know, Mount Lemmon. But, and then three days, four days later, I found another one. It was just my time. And that's it. I've only have two. At a little after 1 a.m., my eyes are getting heavy, and I decide to retire to a dormitory a few hundred yards away from the telescopes. I drive down the road with only the parking lights on to not interfere with the telescopes. For the observers who spend three and sometimes as many as six nights in a row on the mountain, there's a small cabin attached to the structure housing the telescope. There's a room with a bank of six computer screens where the data is readily visible. The building also contains a fully equipped kitchen, a bedroom, and bath. Matheny says she has adjusted her personal schedule to match her professional life, sleeping during daylight hours and awake when the sun goes down. It's just easier that way. After a three-hour nap, I went back to the dome to check on Matheny's finds. There are still about two hours left in her shift. 
they're looking for things that have never been discovered before and things that could possibly you know pose an impact risk to earth and if you have a part in in mediating that danger then it, it's it's pretty rewarding um at the same time it's pretty scary <laughs> but it's mostly rewarding as dawn approaches Matheny finishes up analyzing the images She's reported 13 good objects that the Minor Planet Center posted for follow-up. And that's a good night, you know, when you have good follow-up and good objects to go after. Okay. Q pause, Q port. Yes. I think that is it. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to put the telescope at zenith, which is 90 degrees, and move the dome over to the south. And the reason I'm doing this is with the telescope at zenith, I'm able to close the mirror covers um, safely and close the upper shutter and the lower shutter of the dome. And that's it, closing up. As daylight appears in the east, Matheny returns to the console to archive the night's work, leave a summary of the shift for her colleagues, and prepare to retire for the day. Later that afternoon, she'll be back to the computer to plot her next night's observing. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Sarah Hammond. Over time, the Catalina Sky Survey has detected nearly half of the near-Earth objects that have been cataloged. The project and its current and alumni observers have 321 comets to their credit. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.